And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you once again to know that you speak to us through your word, that the Holy Spirit within us gives us clarity and helps us to understand things that without the Holy Spirit we would never be able to understand. And so we thank you for his presence in us. We ask that he would convict us of anything we need to be convicted of, that he would correct us of anything we need to be corrected of, that he would train us for every good work of righteousness, that Christ would be glorified because of what we learn today from your word. May Christ be exalted in this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We have spent over three months in John chapter 3, and that was a, a wonderful, wonderful study. We were really introduced to the heart of the gospel there. The heart of the gospel is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. That's the gospel. And it ended with the gospel. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the gospel. The gospel is so beautiful. And chapter 3 of John really puts it on display. Really lights it up and puts it on full display. There are a lot of wonderful and amazing things about the gospel. There are so many reasons for us to not only believe the gospel, but to love and to cherish the gospel, to, to constantly be in awe of the gospel. And, and while there are a lot of reasons, everybody would, would probably be able to draw out a list, a whole list of reasons that we should love and cherish the gospel. I'd say one reason that should make it to the top, toward the top of the list, is that there is not a single person in all of human existence who doesn't need it. You think of all the things that a person needs to survive. We need food. We need air. We need water. We need shelter uh, or hydration, uh, some, some kind of hydration. We need sleep, right? We, we do need sleep. Uh, thank you for that, right? But all these things, they're good, and they, they do have their place, of course, but if we're wise, we should also realize that the day is coming when we will no longer need those things. Life is short, and as surely as life begins, life, if the Lord tarries, is destined to end. And when that comes, all those physical needs, air, food, water, sleep, we won't need those anymore. Those things won't matter anymore. But the gospel is the one thing that we need, the importance of which extends beyond this life and into eternity And as we saw in our previous lesson in John, our response to the gospel is what determines where we will spend eternity. Remember, John ended chapter 3, writing, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That breaks it down to two types of people in this world. Two types of people. Those who have believed the gospel and thus have eternal life, and those who have not, and thus abide under the wrath of God. 
what we see here is that everybody needs the gospel. That's the verse that leads us to what we're about to see in chapter 4. And what's beautiful about this is that there's no people group, there's no location in the world where this doesn't apply, where people don't need the gospel. If you go to a presidential fundraising dinner where the cost for admission is $100,000 a plate or, or whatever they charge these days after inflation, I don't know, If you go to one of these things, you'll find the wealthiest people, you'll find the most powerful people, you'll find the most influential people, the most prestigious people in the world, and every single one of them needs the gospel. On the other hand, if you go to the most impoverished nation, the most impoverished village in the most impoverished nation in the world, the most remote people group on the planet, every single one of them also needs the gospel just as badly as all those people at the presidential dinner. So in this sense, the gospel levels the playing field. Everybody must come to the same foot of the cross. There's not one child of Adam on the face of the planet through all of human existence who can truly say, you know, I I see what this is, but I don't personally need to repent and believe in Jesus. There's nobody ever, no child of Adam could ever have said that. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female, slave, free, red and yellow, black and white, everybody needs the gospel. The gospel is the one thing that everyone always has needed and always will need. So as we continue our study of the gospel of John today, we're going to be venturing into the fourth chapter, finally, but I want to start by showing us how John is illustrating the way that the gospel levels the playing field. And that's going to require us to keep chapter 3 in mind a little bit here, at least at the outset. In chapter 3, we are introduced to a specific character named Nicodemus, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Being a Pharisee, he was powerful. He was socially respected. Uh, He had a lot of power. uh, And he was extremely moral. He was extremely moral, as far as other people were concerned, at least, compared to other people. He did everything that he could to keep the law of God. And Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know that all that power, all that prestige, all that moralism, all that good morality, it was worthless in terms of salvation. It was not good enough in God's eyes to warrant grace or salvation. So attacking the trust that Nicodemus had in himself, what did Jesus say to him? Nicodemus is, is feeling pretty confident, and Jesus says, no, you've got to be born again. What are you, a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? You must be born again, or more literally, you must be born from above. In other words, here's this morally upright man, and Jesus is saying, It's not good enough. God must be the one to save you. You cannot save yourself. Now, here's the tendency that we have, because we know that the Pharisees are all the bad guys, right? So we have this tendency to think that God hates all the Pharisees 
But the interaction that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus proves to us that that isn't true because Jesus didn't have to say a word to him. Jesus didn't have to deflate his ego. Jesus didn't have to point out to him, your moralism, Nicodemus, is not good enough. But he did. He did. And it's recorded for us in his word. It's perhaps the most famous conversation in all of history. He showed Nicodemus the futility of his self-righteousness. But conversely, we also have a tendency to think that God has a greater love for the oppressed, for the poor, for the afflicted, than he has for somebody who's wealthy and prestigious. But the truth is that on that last day, when we stand before the Lord, The rich and the poor alike will be judged according to their response to the gospel. Lest we think that the gospel is only good news for somebody who's poor and afflicted, John introduced us to Nicodemus to show us it's also for the rich. And lest we think that the gospel is only good news for the rich and the affluent, John is now going to introduce us to a woman who actually remains nameless, but is simply known as the Samaritan woman at the well. Nicodemus. Nicodemus needed to be born again, and so did this woman. Nicodemus's greatest need was to hear and believe the gospel. And the Samaritan woman at the well, her greatest need is exactly the same. And I love the way that John, that, that John by, by the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, designed this because it really sets up a stark contrast between two very, very, very different people who also have some similarities. They're similar in the sense that they both need the gospel. But their differences are huge. Nicodemus is this Jewish leader. He's, he's well-respected. The woman at the well was a Samaritan who was apparently something of a social outcast. Nicodemus is very educated and was considered to be very orthodox in his beliefs. The woman at the well, being a Samaritan, would have been viewed as a half-breed heretic. Nicodemus is a leader. The woman is a common citizen at best. Nicodemus sought out Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well didn't seek Jesus. Rather, she was sought out by Jesus. The encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus took place at night. The encounter that the Samaritan woman has with Jesus takes place in the heat of the middle of the afternoon. So literally, the difference between these two is night and day. And I have no doubt that we're actually supposed to see that in order that we may more clearly and more fully understand the point of this passage that we're going to be looking at today. And the point is simply this. Everybody, without exception, needs the gospel. Everyone, without exception, needs the gospel. The gospel is universal in its offer, but it is limited or it's particular in its actual application. In other words, God has instructed that the gospel be preached universally to all, without exception, Everyone must be made aware that they have sinned and are under the wrath of God, and everyone must be made aware of the offer of eternal life, of salvation by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. But how will they hear this good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How will they hear it? There must be a preacher. 
there must be one who goes to them and proclaims the good news. So the offer of salvation alone, or uh, salvation in Christ alone, is for all. But the application of the gospel, the, the, the salvation that's offered in the gospel, is only granted to those who will believe. So if God has ordained from, or, uh, from, from eternity past to save a person, he also ordains the means by which they will hear and believe the gospel. He is an ordaining, decreeing, sending God. Remember what Jesus prayed to the Father, just as you have sent me, I am sending them, speaking of the disciples, speaking of the disciples of the disciples, and so on and so forth. In this case that we're going to be looking at today, God has ordained the salvation of a Samaritan woman, and God has sent Jesus, his only son, to her. And thus John starts chapter 4 by setting up the background of Jesus' encounter with this woman. Let's look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4 together. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the the parcel of of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we learned in the previous chapter that Jesus had been gaining followers, many of whom were previous disciples of John the Baptist. And you'll remember that some of his disciples, some of John the Baptist's disciples, came to him and they were very concerned about the fact that John the Baptist was losing popularity while Jesus was gaining popularity. And ultimately, John the Baptist's response to that was, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And what we're seeing here is how Jesus increases, what happens as he increases. Uh, so apparently the Pharisees have also found out, it's not just John, uh, John the Baptist's uh, disciples, the Pharisees have also found out that Jesus' ministry is growing. And if John the Baptist had been a problem for them, uh, maybe they would have felt even more threatened with the increasing popularity of Jesus' ministry. Maybe in their minds, we're not told, so all we can do is speculate, but maybe in their minds they're thinking, oh boy, Here we go again, this movement is gaining popularity and we are losing disciples, perhaps. But there's no indication in the text that at this point, Jesus is ruffling their feathers or getting underneath their skin, other than maybe his encounter with Nicodemus. But obviously they were keeping an eye, the Pharisees were keeping an eye on John the Baptist. Maybe they found out about Jesus' increasing popularity because they noticed that John the Baptist's popularity was decreasing. Fewer and fewer people were going out to be baptized by John the Baptist. But either way, it seems that John fills us in on this specific detail because it wouldn't be long before the Pharisees would start creating problems for Jesus. And John just tells us, the Lord knew. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, how did he know? It doesn't say that he was told. It simply says he knew, which reminds us of what John the author said back at the end of chapter 2. He knew all men. 
And he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John, the author, seems to be making a case, a subtle case, for Christ's deity here. He knew because he knows all things, as only God knows all things. So it seems that most commentators actually don't see verse 2 as very significant. Um, Few commentators actually say anything at all about verse 2, and yet here it is. Right in our Bibles, uh, shouldn't it force us to ask where it says that Jesus wasn't baptizing? His disciples were the ones baptizing, but he wasn't. Shouldn't it force us to ask why? Why wasn't Jesus baptizing with water? It should force us to ask something like that. And I believe that the answer is found partly in what we're going to see in the passage to come, where Jesus reveals that he is living water. And I believe it also has to do with the fact that he came not to baptize with water, but with the Holy Spirit. I mean, nobody, nobody could honestly look at Jesus' ministry and just say, he's just a, a, another John the Baptist. He, he's a, a more charismatic John the Baptist. He's a John the Baptist ripoff. You know, nobody could say that. What, what John offered with water baptism was just a physical illustration of the baptism that Jesus offered. By not baptizing with water, there was no room for any confusion among the disciples who had previously followed John the Baptist, thinking that he's just following suit. He's following John the Baptist's example. No, by not baptizing with water, Jesus is sending them the message that he is different and indeed superior to John the Baptist. And by not baptizing with water, nobody would claim that their baptism was better than somebody who was baptized by Peter or by John or by fill-in-the-blank. I mean, we know that that's an inclination of the human heart. We see that in 1 Corinthians. People are bragging about who they were baptized by. Imagine being baptized by Jesus. Well, all of a sudden, you've got an overinflated ego. You feel like your baptism might be better than anybody else's, so you should have more authority. It's an inclination of the human heart. The human heart is always inclined toward pride and sin. But what's interesting to note here is that right when Jesus' popularity is ascending, it's, it's increasing in the region of Judea, Jesus leaves. And, and he goes back to the region of Galilee. And John says something that just doesn't seem quite right at first glance. He says, and he had to pass through Samaria. What's odd about that is that that's kind of like saying, say that I'm, I'm driving down to Portland and I tell you, well, I'm going down to Portland and I'm going to stop in Spokane on the way. And you'd say, welcome to the Pacific Northwest. That's five hours out of your way, uh, each direction. So that's another 10, 12 hours that you're talking about, right? That's true. And so it was with Jesus passing from the region of Judea to Galilee. He did not, geographically speaking, have to pass through Samaria. Geographically, it was not necessary by any means. In fact, most Jewish people were recorded as having gone a different route so as to avoid contact with the Samaritans. So how was it necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria? 
Let's start with what we know happens on the way. Jesus will meet this Samaritan woman at the well who by the end of the chapter will have told multitudes of Samaritans about Jesus so that we read in verse 39. If you have your Bible, look down at verse 39. We read, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. Now look down at verse 42 where it says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So why was it necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria? Well, it's the will of the Father, for one. It's the will of the Father. In John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus constantly, unswervingly, walked in the will of the Father. So that's the first reason that it was necessary. It wasn't because Jesus himself necessarily willed to go there, but it was because it was the Father's will. He came to do the Father's will. It was necessary because it was the will of the Father that many Samaritans would repent and believe in Jesus. It was necessary because God's ordaining and decreeing love made it necessary for him to travel through Samaria. God's compassion for the lost, God's care, his concern for the lost made it necessary that Jesus go through Samaria. Now let's be upfront about this much. We don't know who the elect of God are. There's no tattoo that they have. You know, God doesn't tell us who they are. He doesn't give them a, you know, a certain haircut that would identify them as being elect. Uh, he doesn't give them a t-shirt to wear that would make it easy for us to identify the elect. We, we would limit our evangelism if there was some kind of designation that would say, this person is elect. We'd be like, I'm going to be the first person at his door and everybody else who doesn't have this, whatever, identifying mark, identifying characteristic, I'll I'll just leave them alone. I don't need to go to them. That's exactly what we would do if God made it obvious in the flesh who they are. And this is why we must take the gospel message to the world without distinctions, without qualifications, not just this group or that group. You know, it's not like one group needs it more than another group. Everybody needs it. Everybody needs it as far as we're concerned. And if they've heard it before, great. Let me, let me share it with you again. Maybe this time it'll, it'll, it'll move your heart. Maybe this time the Lord will, will use it to open the eyes of your heart to see the glory of Christ. But just as compassion and care And concern for the lost is what drove Jesus to go out of his way to share the gospel. So too, friends, you and I have to be driven by compassion, care, and concern for the lost. If we don't have that, if that's not the foundation of our evangelism, then we have the wrong motivation. If we're not doing it because we love them, if we do it because we want to put a notch in our belt, if we're doing it because, hey, maybe I'll get more rewards in heaven, those are selfish motives. Our motives have to start with the right motives. We have to love our neighbors. We have to have compassion for the lost. We're supposed to 
obey God, and he's commanded us to do it, so that's one reason to do it, but we also do it because we love our neighbors. It's the second greatest commandment, right? To love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And that's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. If it was you, would you want somebody to share the good news with you? Of course you would. And so, we must love our neighbors enough to bring the gospel to them. Do you love the lost enough to do that? Do you love the lost enough to go out of your way for them? To inconvenience yourself, maybe? Do you love the lost enough to maybe get a little bit uncomfortable temporarily from time to time for their benefit and yours, by the way? Sharing the gospel isn't only for their benefit. God has given us a benefit in it as well. Give us, if nothing else, it gives us a front row seat to a miracle. That's what salvation is. When somebody repents and believes, it is literally a work of God. And if we're evangelizing, we get a front row seat to that. Because this is the foundation, friends. This is the foundation, the first step in evangelism. To love, to care, to be concerned enough for people to sacrifice your comfort for a few minutes. Now, as you consider how you'd answer that question, do you, love, do you love your neighbors enough to go out of your way for them? Let me once again say that Jesus was going through Samaria because it was the Father's will. It was the Father's will that Jesus seek out this woman because this woman would not have sought Him. And the same is true of you, and the same is true of me, and the same is true of anyone who has repented and put saving faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. Jesus said that his purpose was to come and seek and save the lost. His purpose was not to let the lost just come to him and, and happen to find him by chance. No, he came to seek them. He came to seek them. And the scriptures put it in plain language for us in Romans 3.11. None seeks for God. None. It's universal. There's not one child of Adam in history who has sought for God on their own. God must seek out the sinner. Because the sinner will not seek out God on his or her own. Now, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking about when I was saved. When I was saved, I considered myself to, I, I was kind of like Nicodemus. I considered myself to be a, a very good, very upstanding, very moral person. And I had been, uh, been taught, more or less, that you know, that was really all that was necessary. Just be a good person. Uh, kind of a, you know, preach the gospel at all times, if, if necessary, use words type of mentality. My, my, just let my life speak for itself. I wasn't getting into a whole lot of trouble. Not like I did when I was 14 anyway. Uh, I, I even won a yearly award that was given out by my college uh, that was given to the most morally upstanding standing students every year. Uh, I thought I was a really good person. And as such, I thought I was good with God. I was certainly not seeking God. I was certainly not seeking truth. I wasn't seeking God, but here's why I got saved. Because he sought me. He sought me. Of all people, I was this wickedly prideful, rebellious person, and he sought me. 
I, I didn't seek him because like most people, man, I thought I was good with God. I, I thought, you know, I'm better than your average person. But he sought me. He sought me. So why are you saved? Because Jesus sought you. If you are saved, it's because Jesus sought you. Probably through a parent, maybe through a friend, maybe through a stranger, maybe just with somebody who loved you enough to share the good news or to to bring you to church or or to risk just a, a moment or two of personal discomfort to share the gospel with you. But through their witness, Jesus sought you. He cared about you. He had compassion for you. And so he not only ordained your salvation, but he also ordained that there would be a means where you would hear the message that you needed to believe for salvation. So let's also consider that Jesus himself cared enough for his sheep that he stepped out of eternity and took on flesh. Talk about a willingness to be uncomfortable. I mean, what could be more comfortable than being the all powerful, all-knowing God sitting on your throne in heaven being worshipped by angels for eternity. What could be more comfortable than that? And of course, he's the ultimate model of forsaking comfort for the sake of compassion, for the sake of love. If the goal of the Christian life is to grow in Christ's likeness, and it is, If the goal of the Christian life is to grow in Christ's likeness, thereby bringing Him glory, we must grow in having the same heart toward the lost that Jesus had toward us. The same willingness to be obedient to the will of the Father. The same willingness to temporarily forsake comfort. Now you might be wondering, who could I do that for? Who's the easiest person to do that for, right? That's the way my brain thinks anyway. Who's, who's the easiest person? I don't want to go for the most difficult. I'm not going to go to, to Harvard and try to debate an atheist or something and convert them. Uh, no, who, who, who can I start with? Well, let me start with the easiest answer. If you're a parent, your kids. You start with your kids, God's design for the family is intimately connected with his plan for the growing of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that that's always the case. There are are people among us here today whose parents were not believers, whose parents did not disciple them in the faith, but some, some other way, Jesus sought them. I'm just saying that if you're a parent, that's your first disciple. That's your first responsibility as a parent. You are their primary disciple maker. I've been saying it, I don't know how many years now, five years, five years, six years, that you are your kid's youth pastor. I'm not, I'm their pastor. There's not an office of youth pastor in the Bible, but there is an office of disciple maker. And parents are designed to be disciple makers of their children. That is by God's design. It's not just because I say so. That is God's design. So let me encourage you, parents specifically, to spend time in deep discussion about spiritual matters with your kids. Nobody knows them better than you do. You couldn't go to a church where they know your kids better than you do, where they spend more time throughout the week with your kids than you do. You have the most intimate knowledge of your kids, and you have the most access to your kids. So spend time in spiritual discussion 
with your kids. That's God's design. God's design is that the church would create spiritually healthy parents and that spiritually healthy parents would be used by God to raise up disciples who are spiritually healthy disciple makers themselves when they grow up. But what if you don't have kids? And, and that's, that, that's, that applies to several of you. I mean, it, it kind of applies to me now. My kids are all grown up and, and moved out. So what if you don't have kids? The design is similar. The church produces spiritually healthy members of the congregation who go out and they share the gospel with those who are maybe in closest proximity to them. Family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers. Or what about just anyone who will listen? In the past couple days, I've shared the gospel with two people I've, I've never seen before and that I might never see again. One when we were cleaning out a storage unit and one while we were out protesting abortion yesterday. I, I would never have known these people. They were strangers to me, but I shared the gospel with them anyway. It was uncomfortable, but I did it anyway. So our children, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, anyone who will listen, they're not going to find God on their own. And they're not going to seek God on their own. See, there's, there's something of a philosophy these days in church ministry that goes something like this. I'll borrow a slogan from a movie. If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. In other words, if you, if you build a nice enough, an aesthetically pleasing enough church, then of course people will come. If you have a nice enough uh, children's program, of course people will come because they want that. If, if you have needs that, they, that you're meeting uh, week in and week out, They'll come, you know, felt needs. But Jesus' plan for church growth is not to make the church more enticing for the lost. His plan is this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore. He's talking to us. He doesn't say, figure out a way to make them come to you. He doesn't say, figure out a way to, to, to draw a crowd no, he says, you go. You go, therefore, because of the authority that has been entrusted to him, all authority on heaven or in heaven and on earth. So do you love the lost enough to go out of your way for them? Jesus did. Out of his care, out of his compassion, he went out of his way for you. He went out of his way for me and for all who would receive eternal life by repenting and believing in him. And he did this for the Samaritan woman. See, we have to begin this chapter in light of the last verse of the previous chapter. Let me read it again. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does, he, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is why we read, and he had to pass through Samaria. It wasn't geographically necessary, but there was no other way to rescue his sheep from the wrath of God. It was necessary because the good shepherd loves his sheep and does the will of the Father who sent him. So Jesus comes to this Samaritan village, this Samaritan city. He, he wouldn't uh, have seen many other fellow Jews there. Um, he, he may have seen a couple, but they would have been social outcasts as far as Jews were concerned. His disciples had to be wondering, you know, what in the world are we doing stopping in this place? Why did we go this way? 
Because there was a long history, a centuries-long history of ethnic tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's part of what makes the parable of the Good Samaritan so powerful, is that the Samaritan in the parable is the good guy. But going back to the year 722 BC, when the Assyrians had defeated the northern kingdom of Israel in battle, the, the Assyrians actually moved a lot of the Jews out of the land and replaced them with pagans from, uh, from the native land around them. And so the Jews who were left in the land among these pagan people ended up intermarrying and, and procreating with these Assyrian foreigners, and the result was that the religion of the land was badly, badly corrupted. Uh, Rather than relying entirely on the scriptures, uh, the Samaritans affirmed part of the scriptures. They, They affirmed the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. They affirmed that much, but they rejected all the other scriptures. They, they were kind of cherry-picking what they were comfortable with and what they, what they understood. Uh, but at the same time, they were also blending uh, what they accepted with the pagan religions from around them uh, with what they already believed about the Pentateuch. So you were really getting all these religious ideas, putting them into a blender and, and hitting frappe. Uh, and so that's what the Samaritans ended up with in terms of their religion. And so the Jews, through the ensuing centuries viewed the Samaritans as these half-breed heretics, which technically they were. But the point is that they refused to extend the proverbial hand of fellowship to the Samaritans. As far as they were concerned, the Samaritans were enemies. And so with that much established, when Jesus goes through Samaria and he rests in this town, he was deep in what would have been considered by the Jews to be enemy territory. We have to understand that much if, uh, if we're going to make sense of the context of this story to, to understand the significance of what follows. So Jesus, being weary and, and thirsty from this journey, stops at Jacob's well, rests there in the sixth hour. And this all sets the context for this amazing conversation that ensues between them. Let's look at verses 7 to 10. We read, There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is sitting on this well in the sixth hour, middle of the afternoon, the hottest part of the day, and he's there alone. His disciples have gone into town. They they wanted something to eat. They left Jesus there. Uh, this, this wouldn't have been a time for Jesus to have typically caught a whole bunch of people out getting water from the well. It's the hottest part of the day. If you've never drawn water from a well, uh, it is a workout. It is not easy by any means. Water happens to be actually very heavy. Uh, if you're getting enough water to last you a day, you're going to have to do it two or three times. Two or three uh, you know, times you're going to have to draw water out of the well. It's, it's heavy. It's a lot of work. So you don't do it in the hottest part of the day. You choose the cool 
coolest parts of the day to draw the water from the well. So the standard time that a woman would be out drawing water would be in the early morning or in the late afternoon when the temperatures are significantly lower than they would be in the middle of the afternoon. So why does this woman come to the well in the middle of the afternoon? Why does she come at this time? And it seems, based on what we're going to learn about her a little further on, it seems that she is actually something of a social outcast. We'll find out later in the conversation that this is not a morally upstanding woman that we're talking about here. One of the scariest aspects of evangelism is just figuring out where to start. I mean, it starts with caring, right? We already established that. It starts with caring, with loving the person enough to... To, to share the good news with them, of course, but I'm talking conversationally. It can feel really intimidating to figure out how do I ease, how do I work this into the conversation? And this is where I would say that it's just very helpful uh, to be very experienced in seeing physical things as illustrations of spiritual truths. The, the Puritans were really, really good at that. Read Thomas Watson. Uh, These are people who who observed nature and saw how it illustrated God in countless ways. So get in the habit of that, because if you get in the habit of that, uh, you can say, oh, what what a beautiful day, and and voila, you're you're moving into a gospel conversation, just with something very simple. Some of you guys know, I used to be a casino dealer in Las Vegas, uh, the last year I did a, uh, that I was doing that, I did a lot of evangelism. What I'd say when people are asking me, oh, what do you think, should I, should I bet big, should I bet small? I'd say, your only sure bet is Jesus. And you would be amazed in the middle of a casino how many gospel conversations that opened up. Just something as simple as that. But you guys don't work in casinos. So... <laughs> So Ray Comfort is another person who is just really, really good at this. If you've heard of Ray Comfort, he's a well-known evangelist, uh, has a a ton of videos on YouTube uh, where where he shows evangelistic encounters. He's just a master at this. One of the things uh, that I've recently seen him do is he'll bring his dog out with him. And of course, if you've got a cute little dog, people want to see and pet and and talk to your little dog, right? And so he'll he'll light up a little conversation with them. Hey, what do you think? He's a cute dog, isn't he? What do you think? Do, do all good dogs go to heaven? And, and at this person, you know, at this point, the person, you know, they're not really thinking of spiritual matters, but Ray Comfort is. And so, they, oh, I don't know, maybe dogs, yeah, all dogs go to heaven. And before you know it, he says, what about you? Are you good? Are you going to heaven? And if they say yes, he'll ask them why. What, what makes you good enough for heaven? And there you go. He's, he's in the door, and he has these great conversations with people. Look him up on YouTube sometime. He is, uh, he is doctrinally sound. He's a, a very, very talented evangelist. But before you know it, this evangelistic conversation's underway. But friends, there are countless, countless ways to bridge from the physical to a spiritual conversation. And that's how Jesus starts this conversation. He asks the woman to get him a drink. I mean, that's a funny way to, to work yourself into a gospel presentation, isn't it? Hey, give me a drink. I mean, he's asking her to do something for him, to serve him. Wouldn't we imagine that Jesus, being fully God, would have started by performing a miracle? 
They're at, a, they're at a well. Couldn't he have miraculously made all the water well up and say, look what I did. See, I'm, I'm God incarnate. You should believe in me. But that's not what he does. He's, he's God in the flesh. He could have done that, but that's not what he does. Or, or maybe we think that Jesus would draw attention to the fact that she's out there in the middle of the hottest part of the day all alone and how that must make her feel like such a social outcast and it's all because of her sin. You know, if you weren't such a sinner, you wouldn't have to be out here in the middle of the afternoon. I don't think that's in Jesus' character at all. But I've seen Christians who use that type of approach. We probably all have. When I was talking to this girl at the storage unit the other day, I asked her, do you know what a Baptist is? And she said, well, I'm familiar with the Westboro Baptists. That's tragic. You know who the Westboro Baptists are? That's their approach. You wouldn't be out here in the middle of the afternoon if you weren't such a horrible sinner. You're under God's wrath. Where's the hope? Where's the compassion? So that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he he asks her for a drink of water. J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, simple as this request may seem, it opened a door to spiritual conversation. It threw a bridge across the gulf which lay between her and him. It led to the conversion of her soul. End quote. So the woman says back to him, you have to imagine that she's being kind of snarky here. She can't believe that he's asked this. So she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? See, what she's doing here, she's actually pointing out all of the social barriers between Jesus and her, barriers that Jesus had to cross in order to talk to her. Really, there are four barriers here. There's the ethnic tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's the fact that this is a woman, Uh, And that's not a big deal in our day and age so much, but it was a very big deal. It was a major uh, social no-no in first century Israel. I mean, we actually have historic records of some of the things that were prayed by Jewish religious leaders at the time. One of the things they'd pray is, blessed are you, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. I mean, it was a very chauvinistic, sexist culture. Uh, rabbis even wouldn't be caught dead publicly speaking to a woman including their wives and daughters and yet here's Jesus willing to cross that social barrier third Jesus asks her asks her for a drink presumably from her water pot right Jews wouldn't do that in Jesus's time they they wouldn't touch much much less drink from a utensil or a pot out of which Samaritans also drank But Jesus crossed that barrier for her. And finally, Jesus spent time openly talking not only to a woman, but a woman who was not morally upright, a a woman who was immoral, who was living in sin. Think of the way that Jesus was chastised by the religious leaders for spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes. They thought that it would defile them to spend so much time with them, but Jesus crossed that barrier for her. See, part of the point here, friends, is that we must have a willingness to cross barriers, too. If the lost are going to believe, they must hear. They must hear the gospel. And if they're going to hear the gospel, somebody must go to them. They aren't accidentally going to stumble into church one Sunday 
It just doesn't happen. They're not going to, to say, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible and, and I, I'm going to believe whatever it says. That, that just doesn't happen. It's, it's rare if it does, if somebody does read a Bible and believes. No, the, the common means by which God has ordained that people would come to faith is not by reading the Bible, but by somebody going to them and sharing the gospel with them. The first principle of evangelism is foundational. It's our motivation. We must love our neighbor. We must care for their spiritual well-being and have compassion for them. But the second principle is that we must have a willingness to cross the cultural, bar- cultural barriers that separate people from God. And third, we must be willing to converse and connect with them. Care for the lost, cross cultural barriers, converse and connect. The Samaritan woman, think about it, she never would have come to Jerusalem. Even if she had known who Jesus was or what he was doing, you know, he's, he was in Jerusalem preaching and performing miracles and ministering to people, she wouldn't have come because they would have kicked her out, and she knew it. Jesus had to come to her. And she doesn't say, hey, uh, nice to, to see a rabbi here. I've been wondering all my life what your religion teaches about God. Could, could you take a few minutes to tell me uh, about your religion, about, about Judaism? Uh, what must I do to be saved by your God? She doesn't do that. Of course she doesn't do that. No, instead she's, she's just snarky with him. What we have to see here is that she's not looking for a spiritual conversation. In fact, she's probably more interested in avoiding it, hence the snark. But Jesus sees this as his chance to just cut to the chase, to to get to the point. So he responds to her saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, what he's saying to her is if you knew who I was, You'd be the one asking me for a drink, and I'd give you something better than water. So he starts with, if you knew the gift of God. That's the point. That's the point. If you knew the gift of God. The point is, she doesn't know the gift of God. Like everyone else who's lost. She has no idea what the gift of God is. But friends, you and I, we know what the gift of God is. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to tell the lost what the gift of God is. God's free gift of salvation, life everlasting, is at the very heart of the gospel. God's gift to undeserving sinners is much more than salvation, though. It is ultimately Himself. He is the gift. The Father sent the Son as a gift to bear the wrath that we deserve because every one of us has sinned and every one of us is worthy of God's wrath. And God is a God who hates and punishes sin, all sin. And Jesus, being God in the flesh, fully God in the flesh, bore God's wrath as a substitute for all who would repent and believe in him. If you have put saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God loved us enough to give us this great gift. The very thing that every person on the face of the planet needs more than water, needs more than air, needs more than than anything else. 
I mean, God could have spread the, the gospel differently, couldn't he? Think about it. Wouldn't it have been more efficient for God to have said, you know what, these people are kind of flaky, so I'm just going to send angels. Wouldn't that be more efficient? Wouldn't that be an effective means of disseminating the gospel? It seems a lot more efficient and effective, but instead God instructed us. He instructed his people to go forth with this message of redemption by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Everyone needs the gospel, friends. Everyone. There are no exceptions. We must care. We must be ready to cross cultural barriers. And we must communicate to those around us the same good news that God ordained would be shared with us so that we would be recipients of God's incredible gift. So we do it out of obedience to God and love for our neighbors. And we trust him with the results. That's the benefit of a high, so- high view of God's sovereignty. We can get the message to somebody's ear, but only God, only the Holy Spirit can penetrate their hearts. But it starts with us having the right motivation and going. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, Thank you for this reminder that you are a seeking God. We confess what your word says, that none seek after God, and if it were not for your grace, we would have remained in darkness. And so, Lord, we stand before you as people who are grateful for what you have given us. Not only redemption, but yourself in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we confess to you that we get so obsessed with our own comfort zones, that we're so afraid to leave our comfort zones, and that if it were not for your grace, that alone would be enough to condemn us forever. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience with us. But Lord, we pray that with the Holy Spirit working in us, that he would give us the right motivation to speak, to share, to do what is the most loving thing in the world for our neighbors, for the glory of Christ, and that is to share the gospel with them. So we pray, Lord, that as we leave today, we pray for conversations that open up for sharing the gospel. We pray for wisdom, that we would know how to do it in a way that doesn't seem manipulative or, or like we're salesmen or anything like that, but that we would just be seen as people who love the lost, remembering that you loved us, that you loved us so much that you sought us. So give us care, give us compassion for the lost, give us courage to obey you for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. 
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus.